I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. I'm Vu. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Today we are joined by Vu Lei, a writer, speaker, vegan, Pisces, and the former executive director of Rooted in Vibrant Communities, a nonprofit in Seattle that promotes social justice by developing leaders of color. But most importantly, Vu shows us that there's humor in the nonprofit sector, yay, and runs the well known blog Nonprofit AF, or as we've just found out, Nonprofit as Fuck. But we already knew that, didn't we? <laughs> no well, problem and fearless. And oh, fearless. <laughs> we'll get there. Welcome, V. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's really, really nice to have you here. So tell us about your journey. How did you get into this blog? Where did it all start? Yeah, I uh, I got into the sector a while ago, a very, very long time ago. I got my master's in social work. And then I started working in, in the nonprofit sector. And then after a while, a funder, one of the funders of one of my organizations asked me to write a blog post on their website. And of course, it's a funder, so you can't really say no, right? So I, I decided to, to write. And after a while, they kept encouraging me to write some more. And eventually, the blog spun off into Nonprofit AF. Nice. Did you ever expect that it would get such a big reception? I mean, you've got thousands of followers on Instagram, on Twitter, people engaging all the time. No. Originally, it was it was written for the eight executive directors in Seattle who were complaining about everything. Right? <laughs> but I think there is definitely a need for humor in our sector and a need to talk about things in a way that's direct and not beating around the bush. Right. We have a lot of academic jargon. We have a lot of people who become very serious about things. And our sector is really fun. There's amazing people in the sector who are brilliant and who are funny and talented. And I think we need to really reclaim that aspect of ourselves and our sector. I'm guessing you're talking about us, right? <laughs> funny, <laughs> talented. You two are hilarious, brilliant. of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you know, you buttered us up. Okay. Okay. As is customary <laughs> in the not-for-profit sector, we thought we'd start off with an icebreaker. <laughs> Of course, yes. I, I would not expect anything otherwise, yeah. Okay, ready? This icebreaker is okay. called Fuck, Mary Kill. <laughs> no, no. First one. Said, no, okay, all right. Ready. I'll play, I'll play along. Vladimir Putin, Bashar al-Assad, <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, none of that. This is this is the worst icebreaker I've ever endured. I mean, classic nonprofit, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> Obviously, journey to transformation does not condone violence of any sort. <laughs> yeah, caveat. <laughs> Do not use this icebreaker anywhere. <laughs> to your favorite ice cream flavors. Okay. All right. Well, in interest of making sure our guest is happy. Favorite ice cream flavors? Oh, oh, I like. Uh, let me I'm see. responding. Oh I'm, I'm adapting. I know, right? <laughs> you know, you know what? This is controversial, but I really do like mint chocolate chip. I know a lot of people hate it because it tastes like toothpaste. You're in good company in this man. Delicious. Yeah. I love it too. Yeah, can't get enough of mint chocolate. I am going to be the oldest person in this city and say butter pecan. <laughs> oh. You know, that's not really a thing in the UK, I swear. I okay. feel like that's an American thing. I feel like it's an American thing for gentlemen of a certain age. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was the icebreaker. Moving on. Vu, 
you did a blog about consultants recently and yes. we are kind of consultants we're stepping into that world we're kind of consultants kind of consultants <laughs> sorry i'm decrediting us entirely we are consultants what am i talking about and we wanted to hear a little bit more about that in terms of where the power sits with consultants because we often find that we don't have enough power to influence or change how organisations work. And that's often a frustration, the balance of how much power do I have to influence them in a direction that, you know, we think they should be going in versus maybe them coming in with a bit of a set agenda and then we have to adapt as external people. So just curious how that came into your blog. Yeah, I totally see where you're coming from, right? I know it can be really frustrating for consultants because I am also one of them, right? I'm also one of y'all. Yeah. And I sometimes do go into an organization. I'm like, you need to do this and this and this and this and this. And you don't really know if they ever will actually do that. Right? You can leave and then you actually don't know if they'll implement any of your suggestions. It can be very frustrating, especially when we're talking about like equity, diversity, inclusion and so on. Right. The blog that I wrote was really talking about how the opposite oftentimes also happens, which is that staff have been saying things for a long time. No one listens to them because they are internal. And so a consultant is brought in who will magically solve everything. And they get listened to and in some ways to say the exact things that the staff have been saying for a long, long time, but no one listened to them. And some consultants do not realize that there is a lot of power in that. And they do not know we don't do a lot of the self-examining and reflecting, then we don't realize that we can actually become these barriers towards change happening. I mean, I meet consultants who come in and they shut down really progressive ideas, you know, and then they, they move people towards moderation and conservative approaches towards doing things, which I don't think is actually really good for the sector. What do you all think? You've been doing this for a while. I would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, gosh, we kind of just throw uh, progressive bombs into organizations and see what happens, really. <laughs> I think that's kind of one of the reasons why it stuck out to us is that that just does not resonate with us at all in our work. Like we're often like <laughs> pushing people, you know, the first thing that it says in our proposals or one of the many things it says in our proposals is that we're going to force people to evaluate history, race, power. And it's really this weird dynamic where people, when we ask them, okay, so, you know, what about our proposal did you like? And they'll say, oh, it's just, you know, feminist principles, rights-based approach, and you're just going to, like, force high-level stakeholders. But then when we actually do it, they kind of freak out and get really <laughs> upset and like, get angry and then refuse to publish our findings, refuse to publish our reports. They still hire us for stuff, which is weird, but it's a really weird dynamic because when I was reading that blog post, I thought, I, I would love to have the problem of an organization <laughs> that's much more fucking woke than we are but that's just not the case what about you lauren yeah no completely agree i think also there's a difference between an organization's ambition which is often what we see when they're calling for a consultant like they have this big ambition to be anti-racist feminist but then they bring us in and the reality of what that means and the work and the capacities that people have don't always match and there's that real dissonance i think between yeah. what the ambition is with bringing us in and then actually what that means in reality are people committed to the time that that takes yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's because you two are probably at the more progressive ends of consultants, right? I wish there would be more consultants like this. I do think that some consultants, they they tend to lean towards like, yeah, let's be pragmatic. Like I talked to one consultant who's like, yeah, don't give feedback to your funder. Don't create a mess. You know, 
And then even my own organization in the previous one, we brought in a consultant to do hiring and the staff got so excited about like shared leadership, about, you know, not having one executive director, but instead they wanted, you know, let's have actually more, more leaders and let's make this flatter. And that freaked out this consultant that we brought in <laughs> and she left. But before she did, she sent like this scathing email to the board and was just like, you know what? Your staff are out of control. They are having a mutiny. <laughs> you know, they're stealing lollipops from babies. They're soaking a cast iron pan in water overnight. I don't know what, what she was saying. She was like sounding all sorts of alarms. Right? And the board really, they're like, oh my gosh, this consultant. <laughs> right? So she freaked out the board. Yeah. Oh, gone. And, and what did they do? The board was freaked out for a while. And then I think it took a long time to really pull back the energy, got a, a different consultant who was a much better fit, who was aligned with the team, who could see and help the organization to navigate. And now my organization has like four co-executive directors. Whoa, we love an executive job share. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, how did this consultant get hired? Because when we find ourselves with organizations who are like, you know, blatantly misogynistic, we're a bit like, how yeah. did we get here? <laughs> I'm just curious <laughs> how, how that happens. I think with any other sort of matching thing, you know, like hiring people for a job, you only have so much. You have like a, a resume, a, a CV, a cover, whatever. And you can have an interview. And I think all of us have been trained to have these scripts, right? And we don't really know how we work together until we actually start working together. So all of the stuff is just prediction. We're predicting based on the information that we have. And that information oftentimes is not accurate. Of course, I'm talking to Lauren, who is like a like evaluation data person. So I'm sure you can. <laughs> She's inputting everything you've said into a spreadsheet just now. So <laughs> we're more like an algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> we're on we're algorithms like now. The square and the Pearson R. <laughs> <laughs> the two-way ANOVAs, whatever you're doing. <laughs> maybe I should pass this over to you. It's been pointed out to me that I've been very cranky these days, so maybe I should let you have the next question. <laughs> <laughs> cranky with a bit of humour. Come on, come on. I know, but it's a very fine line, I think, sometimes. I can spiral out of control very easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about leadership, because you were just talking about the co-leadership or the co-executive directors. How do you get to that point? Because that feels like a very progressive thing to be doing. And, you know, so many of organisations we've worked for, they're still holding that executive director position. One person is holding it, you know, and they may not even be someone who is progressive or thinking about anti-racism. And yet that power still holds. What does it take to get to the point where people are embracing more than one leader? Well, I would say right now is actually a really good opportunity, right? I mean, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that all the things that we thought were unchangeable, now is a good time to change them because everything is made up. All this shit is made up, you know? The traditions that we pass down to one another and they're kind of built on white supremacy and capitalism and so on. And if this pandemic and everything that's been going on doesn't challenge us to see things differently and try some new shit out, then I don't know when we're ever going to do this. So I would encourage everyone to to start trying and experimenting. My organization, I mean, there are catalytic forces, one of which was we hired someone, Ananda Valenzuela, and they have been really amazing in helping to bring in these new insights and so on. And we worked really well together. And the rest of the team was just like, yeah, let's try some new stuff. Like, why, why are we here? I mean, the whole reason why I founded the organization a while ago was that a lot of capacity building has not been working for communities of color-led organizations, right? We're taking white-led frameworks 
and philosophies and practices and force communities of color to apply them. And then we wonder, like, why aren't Black-led or Indigenous-led or Latino-led organizations, why are they not doing so well? Well, it's because we're forcing them to become like a white organization. And they don't want that. And they shouldn't do that. So my organization was founded to help build the capacity of these organizations. So for us, it was a natural course to think, you know what? We need to change the way we do everything, the way we do fundraising, the way we think about leadership, the way we think about capacity building, all of it. And so it was really exciting for us to explore different ways of doing it. But it was still difficult because these philosophies have been so ingrained in our sector that it's very hard to challenge. We had a guest on recently, Martha Awajobi, who was talking to us about this idea that we have to think more creatively because all your frame of references are bound up in white supremacy. It's hard to be creative and think of something new. I found that very challenging because she said that white supremacy is liking spreadsheets and Gantt charts, which I love. So I'm just going to have to be a little bit of a white supremacist. I won't give up my spreadsheets. I do admit, I feel a little bit challenged by the idea of of how many people lead an organization because like very famously ships only have one captain and i know that's a white supremacy thing sorry everyone i get it but also i'm allowed to say it because i'm brown so don't marginalize me lauren i see you looking at me with your judgment your white gaze on me so i'm willing to come around to the idea like i do love executive job shares i do think there is a really important place for them. They also just make me a little bit nervous because I worry about that servant of two masters thing (laughs) where I'm just like, who's in charge? And Lauren, very famously on this podcast, talked about how I was one of her managers. She had two and I was one of them. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, good, oh, good. And I know that was tricky. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) for you, not for me. Let's talk about this. Yeah, I have some thoughts about this. I would also love to hear Lauren's thoughts about this. I think all of the things that we have, it's like the air that we breathe, right? The white supremacy, it's, it's in the air. So all the words that you've been using, Tia, is who's in charge? Like even the concept of having someone in charge in the first place is something we have to move away from. Having a manager, having a person who's in charge. This is like, who do we report to? Why do we serve one serving too many masters? All of these concepts, I think we need to re-examine. And you're right, it is very challenging to really re-examine them. But I don't think it's just like this one concept. It's the entire framework in which we operate all together. And that has been something that I have been trying to challenge myself to really think, you know, like, am I just changing one tiny thing? You can try to remodel your kitchen if the kitchen is not good. You're like, you know, I need to remodel. But maybe you're like, you need to destroy the whole house (laughs) and rebuild something else entirely. Right. Or maybe we rethink the entire concept of a house. Why do we only have like one family living in one house when many of us grew up in villages, for example, where it's very fluid? So like the whole concept, the kitchen to the house, to the entire neighborhood, these are things that we need to start examining. I have no idea what I'm talking about right now, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it makes complete sense. But I wouldn't even know where to begin to think outside of what I think a house is. (laughs) You know, drawing that little box when I was a kid, like that's always been a house to me. (laughs) So, I mean, this is white supremacy thinking, isn't it? You travel around in a van. What are you talking about? Well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. I think your mind is a little bit open to the concept of a house. (laughs) I guess what does that, because here's the thing. In principle, I love everything that you're saying. And I really 
want to be the person I used. I've, I think I've just been beaten down so hard because <laughs> I used to be like, let's just throw everything out. Let's start again. But I think what's happened to me over time, a lot's happened since I had my last birthday, Boo, I'll be honest with you. I've gotten a bit cranky since I had my last birthday. How about there was seven days ago? <laughs> Do you not think I've become cranky since then? Yes, yes. So I will. There concur. you go. <laughs> what does that look like practically? Because we can throw everything out and start again. And this was the same question that I had to friend of the pod, Martha, is how do we do that when like fundamentally we're dealing with like life and death shit? I love an experiment. I love micropiloting. I love testing. I love the idea of these innovation hubs and circles, but there's an element of risk involved in that. And I guess I just wonder, like, it's all well and good to reconceive of a house up until the point where somebody actually needs to live in that house today or they're going to die. So like, help me, help me with my panic. What do I do? Yeah, I did read that you, you know, social work, psychology. This is actually why we brought you here is to fix me. (laughs) Well, I mean, let's just let's just talk about the nonprofit complex for a second. Right. I think a lot of people have been very disillusioned by nonprofits and the nonprofit industrial complex and how I think in some ways, going back to my first blog that you referenced earlier today, which is like a lot of consultants. I think all of us are like in this self-protection mode in some ways. We need to exist because we have mortgages to pay unless we live in a van. I have no idea what your y'all situations are. I but like we have families down. to feed, we have to pay for our housing. <laughs> and so we become very self-protective. And so this kind of leads to this complex, nonprofit industrial complex of many of us protecting ourselves. And we don't realize, you know, like, let's actually think about what is effective. For example, there are certain things that are very effective. We implement immediately direct cash transfers, for example. There's been so much research now just giving people money, cash, unrestricted money, individuals. Here is several thousand dollars. Go and do whatever it is that you need to do because we trust you to know what is best for you and your families. And they have just tons of studies that show that this works. I think a lot of consultants and a lot of nonprofit staff are like, but what happens to us? What happens, you know, if, if we do that and we no longer need it? Well, this is what I mean, what re-examining these, these sort of concepts here. Are we even needed? I think in some ways, mutual assistance over the past several years of the pandemic of neighbors just supporting one another because they, we could not rely on the government in some ways to provide food. So, like, I loved the inspirational stories of, like, all these mutual assistance organizations propping up, just turning, you know, and doing some really cool shit, like like a for-profit, like, restaurant who couldn't get any more customers, right? Turning into a food pantry so that, you know, community members can actually go there. People were doing very creative things all the time because we can actually support one another. But instead, we move into this, like, this is how it should be done, because this is what capitalism says is the way it should be done and the way it's effective, according to the white people who said that this is what effectiveness is defined as. So I think that this is what I mean by, like, we can actually move away from this and into some creative stuff. And it's been shown to work. Direct cash transfer, mutual assistance, these are actually things that do work. And our communities, especially communities, marginalized communities, communities of color, we've been supporting one of for like generations now, right? That's how we've survived white supremacy. So it's not that we're moving into chaos. We're actually moving into what's been effective for many of our communities that we've been known to be effective for decades and decades now. How much is this dependent on every white person coming with us on this journey? You know, let's say half of us are like, okay, I'm going to buy into this and I'm going to put my self-protection to one side, but the other half don't. 
then that kind of reinforces my self-protectionism again because I'm like, oh, everyone else is not thinking like this. I mean, it feels slowly that people are coming with us, but will everybody? And I, I guess they won't. Well, I think it's easy to be pessimistic about this, especially if you just had a birthday. <laughs> I'm just, I'm older. I'm crankier. I just want to sleep. Yeah, me too. And watch Netflix. Like, that's, that's amazing. Like That's all I want to do right now. But, you know, I want to choose optimism right now. Open-eyed optimism. You know, I can see there's like so many inequities in our society. And at the same time, there's brilliant people, including many white allies who are doing incredible work. And many of the things that were off limits to even be discussed in the past are now actually getting more and more into the mainstream to be discussed. So an example is like reparation for slavery in the United States. In the past, if you mentioned the R word, you would just be shut down. But now Congress people are talking about it. People are saying about this, you know, and the fundraisers actually talking about this. Instead of just telling donors that they're amazing and writing them a handwritten thank you note, which is what we do a lot over here in the United States, for any amount of money that they give, we're actually like, okay, we really appreciate your donation, but actually, let's also talk about where you got this money in the first place. And a lot of money is from slavery, stolen indigenous land, worker exploitation, environmental degradation, and tax avoidance. And people are having more conversations about this. So I don't think it's as fast as we want it to be, but it is heading there. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to see more and more people actually doing things like that. I was talking to a major donor who told me that she attended a workshop where she discovered that her family's wealth was built on stolen indigenous land. And she decided that she is going to return when she gets her inheritance, she's going to give 100% of it back to the native community because this is not her money. And she shouldn't be a donor of money that should never have come to her family in the first place. More and more of these conversations are happening. Tia looks skeptical. Yeah. I was trying to feel the joy. I'm like, no, okay, okay. I'm I'm more easily persuaded to the optimist. <laughs> I do feel optimistic. That's the thing. I do feel optimistic. I feel optimistic around the fact that our social consciousness is different. But it feels like we're doing like trading. So when you say like, you know, reparations is no longer the nasty R word. I'm like, yes, that's great. But we've just replaced it with reproductive rights. Do you know what I mean? Like we're just trading around these things and we're not moving forward in a way that makes sense to me because I'm a white supremacist. I like order in my life and I want to see things that are moving forward and that progress is happening where it feels like what we do. I am American. What I see in our politics is we go forward in a huge way and then we go backwards 25 steps and then we kind of go a little bit forward a little bit and then yeah. everybody freaks out because that's just too much progress and then we go back loads like i think i've got like roe v wade trauma because all the yeah. things that i thought were resolved almost feel like they're not resolved but i do take comfort in the fact like i can say with definite certainty for anybody who's listening to this and is worried that they're going to be out of a job in this sector the scale of the problem is massive you're going to be working forever <laughs> Forever and ever and ever and ever. You'll never retire. Ever. Don't worry. You'll always have a job. Oh, come on now. We've just started talking about how to get white people out of jobs. Well, I mean, you know, but, you know, we're also talking about good people doing good work. I think you're doing all right work. I'm proud of Gee, you, Lauren. Thanks. You've done some really, really good things. Put my white savers and back in the box. I think in some way what we're seeing right now is the last stand of white supremacy. I mean, I think that's my optimistic take on it, right? Which is that there has been so much progress in some ways. Yeah, 
But people see that. They see the progress. They get freaked out about it. White people know that in some ways, the sort of societal power that they've been holding on for so long is being challenged and it's actually working. That the people that they never thought. I think that the election of Obama was so shocking to so many white people that this is probably one of the main reasons why we've been seeing such a backlash, right? This white lash, as, as some people have, uh, have been calling it. And I was on Twitter. I saw this thread by a psychologist who's just like, y'all, I see signs of the patriarchy falling. There's like all of these young men who go to me for therapy and they're just freaking out because the women in their lives just no longer want to be controlled. They're out there building their own power and careers and taking what is theirs. And all these young men that he was providing counseling to are just freaking out more and more. And to him, this is like a sign that it's working in some ways. But there's going to be some backlash. And this is what we're seeing right now. But you cannot hold back this progress. I think whenever there is so much progress and then people know that they are losing, they're just going to mount one final battle because they know they're in this existential crisis. I think white supremacy is in an existential crisis right now. And that is a good thing. I think it's an absolute positive signal for where we can be in the world. But I just feel there is part of me that also is very, very scared of what that looks like, right? You corner a wild animal and they feel afraid for themselves and for their primacy and they yeah. act crazy. And I think we know that when we see violence in America and what that looks like. The rhetoric in the States, I mean, this isn't even really what we were talking about, but I'm just like really enjoying this conversation. But I just think that with the early indications of the collapsing of white supremacy or the chiseling away of it, I don't know that it can totally be collapsed. It took a long time to build and strengthen. I don't think the last 20 years is going to do anything to chip out of the way substantively. But I think there just also needs to be a sort of bracing for you know toxic men aren't just going to be like my power my power oh that's sad and like walk away (laughs) they're gonna be like my power my power and struggle to find it and become increasingly insecure and marginalized and frustrated and then troll people and act crazy and hurt people in real life so i have an optimism for where i think we're going and that's about the social consciousness changing and shifting and black lives matter was a big part of that you know it's a punctuated moment in time where we're all like oh wait we have a collective responsibility to look out for each other and open our eyes but it also just you know alongside that came a lot of shitty stuff and that's what worries me but nonprofits. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, go back to nonprofits. I'm sorry, Lauren. We've been talking a lot. We want to show it to you. Uh, She's white. She's not allowed to have space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was just thinking when you were saying the power struggle that may come out of this, we are kind of seeing it in the nonprofit space a lot. I mean, we've seen comments from white men being like, why are women getting opportunities for equality, <laughs> diversity and leadership training? And they feel that actually that means they're not getting any opportunities and that's going to be hugely problematic for their future growth in an organisation. So in a perhaps less strong way, we are seeing comments and some pushback anonymously <laughs> in certain forums about this. So that's where they do it. Of course. Yeah. I mean, when you're not used to <laughs> like this, then it's just equalising forces, right? But you're not used to it. If you're just so used to privilege, I think someone says, right, then equity feels like oppression to you. And I think white men are in this period where they never felt oppressed before as a group. And now they are starting to feel like when it's not oppression, it is just the very small 
tiny incremental changes that are happening. And I think this is why there's been such a white men backlash here over the past several years, right? Because they're starting to feel like this tiny little bit. They feel 1% of the oppression that women of color and other marginalized population have felt. They're like, oh my gosh, I don't like this. I feel like there's also this revenge fear. They fear that marginalized communities will do to them what they have always done to marginalized communities. And it's like this sort of guilt that they feel is like, oh shit, we really fucked things up for people, really fucked people over. And they're going to fuck us over back. When the reality is that many of us don't want to fuck anyone over. We just want Speak equity. for yourself. Right. Speak for yourself. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're describing me. They're describing me. <laughs> All right. So as long as Tia is not in power, most of y'all are going to be fine. Right. I think like the land back movement. I mean, this is something that is really interesting to me. I was in New Zealand and whole governments are buying back land to return to Maori communities. Like, that's so cool. And I know in the United States, there's some of that being happening, returning land to native communities. People stole these from natives. But of course, a lot of people are freaking out. A lot of white people are like, oh my gosh, what, what's going to happen? Are they going to kill us all? If they get their land back, whatever. I'm like, I don't think any natives actually out there <laughs> trying to kill people or like putting you on reservations or concentration camps, or whatever the heck that you're fearing. Mm. That is a very white sort of way because you're so used to this sort of white capitalistic, white supremacist way of thinking that everyone thinks the same way as you. And a lot of communities, no, we actually don't want that. Like the idea of ownership, I think, is something that a lot of communities like, who owns the land? Like who, who has the right to even own the land? So this idea of ownership may not even make any sense for some of the mm. communities when we're returning land back to them. They would just probably safeguard it and put really responsible policies into place to protect the earth and stuff like that's good for everyone. I can understand why a lot of white men are fearing this. They're not used to it. They've never experienced it before. But, you know, I think we have to get out of that, out of this sort of fear, because I'm not sure if it's realistic. I will say that one of my side projects is around mentoring young white men. I don't want to say indoctrinating or brainwashing them. She collects them and like brings them into the van. That sounds a bit dodgy. That is not what I do. They do not come into the van. But I do have some young white men in my family. And they're high school age. They're at that age where they're like peak fucking like the potential for them to go one way or another is like very, very high. And I do feel like this is my charitable act really is i'm like oh how's it going like what's happening if you ever want to talk like let's talk well, what's good like what's happening in your life things feeling a bit tricky i'm like okay well here's how you can think about like interacting with women in a different way i'm just trying to like get it because i'm like you are the most dangerous thing on this planet a young white privileged man the most dangerous thing well i'd like to think i'm the most dangerous <laughs> one because i'm a <laughs> queer woman of color nearly about to be a doctor but I feel like they need a lot of nurturing. Once they hit 24, I can't really be dealing with them. But anything below that, I do feel like when I see like little white boys wandering around, I'm like, oh, hey, aren't you great? Aren't the women and other girl children or non-binary children around you also fantastic? And it's okay to like pink. That doesn't mean anything. And Go ahead and cry. Like, I'm just like, I mean, the the parents think it's weird because I don't know them or their children. So that's a bit odd. But there is a part of me where I'm like, young white people need a a lot of care and nurture mostly because you guys can't go in the sun or <laughs> i think this is really vital here tia right and i think that a lot of conservative forces understand that and this is why for example i point out in some of my blog posts like conservatives spend five times more to indoctrinate younger people into conservative values than progressives do 
in the United States. And there's some research. We don't really talk about it, but they do. They provide support for like college Republicans, for example, or they ensure they donate a ton of money to universities so that the university will actually embed professors into these colleges and universities to teach these kids about conservative values and get them aligned that way. Because they know that in some ways, progressives vastly outnumber them and they have to like do way more. This is another part of the existential crisis that they're feeling. And I think that we just need to stop freaking out about everything all the time. And I've been seeing a lot of defeatism online. I think all of this is completely understandable right now. But I'm like, okay, we can spend like five minutes <laughs> feeling like shit and that we need to organize. We need to start getting out there because part of the scheme of like getting us to lose is to make us demoralize and to believe that we cannot win when the reality is that if everyone just votes, basically every politician will be progressive. That's just how it is. But they know that. So they've been suppressing votes in the United States everywhere. In principle, I'm totally with you. In principle, I'm completely with you. But things that really discourage me are things like gerrymandering. <laughs> like mm -hmm. stuff where you effectively that's where you kind of redistrict so that you're controlling the size of the voting population so that effectively they kind of just only have one option. Mm. I mean, it's complicated. It's complicated. It has to do with redistricting. And I think Obama is still working on this with Eric Holder. I think this is like their long term project. I don't know when they're going to stop doing this. But it's just things like that where I think like, yeah, everybody should vote. But even your voting is rigged or everyone should vote. But the misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. So in principle, I yeah. think like, yes, people vote their values. But when their values are fundamentally being manipulated by dark forces that's when yeah. i start getting a little bit i start going into the spiral but i'm only going to do that now for five minutes i'm going to come out of it <laughs> five minutes I, five minutes five minutes i spiral. will spiral with you Tia, for five minutes it is frustrating i mean like there are laws in the united states lauren you may not know this or you you probably do but like there are like armed people militias you know like intimidating voters and that's perfectly legal. But if you decide in some cities to actually give people food and water while they're they're voting, you could get arrested and jailed. That's for that. crazy. So it's, it's okay to intimidate people with guns while they're voting. Not okay to give them food and water while they are waiting for literally 12 hours to vote here. Wow. So it is completely understandable to spiral here in the United States. I would join you in London. I really would. I'm just <laughs> like, you know what? This van yeah. is big. It's a big van. <laughs> I mean, but you all have some shitty things going on over there as well. So. <laughs> It's not great, but we have so universal health care, so that's cool. <laughs> yeah, again, it's a bit of a trade-off. For now, you do. For now. Let's see what happens with the new prime minister and, and stuff. A person of color, yay, who is very conservative. Yeah. yeah so, he's rich as fuck I don't know. as well. He's trying to... He's... Lauren, bring us back, Lauren. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lauren, sum it up. <laughs> sum it up. We went all around the world then. <laughs> I mean, the one thing I was thinking then when we were touching on the white power again and white supremacy is even when we've seen people people in non-profits try and give up their power white people try and give up their power that's been denied yeah. or they've been like oh you know sorry you can't give up your job right now for whatever reason and so it's sort of shifting people to the social consciousness and the practical ability to say yes I'm ready to step out of my job but if the system and the organization is not ready itself you know it's almost like system has to come with the social consciousness anyway bringing it slightly back to non-profits <laughs> 
Yeah, but but now I'm down again. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I thought it, we went up, we went down, we came back. I think you're right. A colleague of mine calls it the rewiting of things, which is sometimes even when there is equity and power is being shifted over to communities of color, this sort of rewiting happens when, again, the sort of backlash happens or people will use concepts like, oh, we're not ready for it, etc. Some of it is valid and we can focus on those and so we can be aware of it. But there's also lots of amazing things that are happening. For example, I was talking to a white colleague who said, I'm just never going to apply for another CEO job of a nonprofit in a neighborhood that is mostly people of color. I'm just never going to apply for a job in leadership there. And I think more and more people are starting to do this. I've been talking to some EDs, one ED in New Zealand, who was just like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out exit plan and how to get my board to be ready for the next leader who needs to be, you know, of Maori descent, et cetera. So there are people, there are white leaders who have been in power who are trying to be very thoughtful. And yes, they do face barriers too, because people, they want to keep things status quo. Mm. But I do think that we need to, we do... I get accused of this all the time. It's like, Vu, you always write about all the negative shit in our sector all the time. You don't talk about all the positive stuff, which is true because there's lots of negative shit. <laughs> there's just so much content. I know this podcast there is, is going to go. There's just so much content to write about. But there are also amazing things that people do, which is why last week I was like, look at all these funders who are taking care of leaders of color and look at all the sabbatical grants that they're making because you're right it is easy for us to focus and we should we should continue to focus on all the shitty things because that's how we're going to change them at the same time if we do that way too much and we become demoralized we don't see the progress that we're making i mean yes things are really shitty we're all gonna die soon from climate change, you know, the 19th wave of the pandemic and monkeypox combining into a giant <laughs> monkey COVID pox doesn't kill all of us. That, that turns into and a yeah. hurricane that picks up a bunch of semi-automatic weapons, whips them around. Right, it's gonna pick up some, some AR-15 to shoot people who are trying to recover from COVID. You know, all the cast iron pans will just rust because they've been soaked for days. I have been accused of That's terrible right. cast iron pan care, so. And at the same time, like, look, there are good things happening. More and more women of color, people of color running for office than ever before in history. Look at what happened in Brazil, right? Lula just won. That was a very suspenseful battle, but they defeated this fascist and brought in, you know, a much better leader. Infant mortality has gone down. Global poverty has gone down. So. Let's not forget the good things that are actually happening in the sector while we deal with the shitty things that are ever present. I'm such a dick. You were like, these good things that happened. And I was like, which? And in my mind, I thought, which was the country that just got rid of their feminist foreign policy? No, no, no. It's negativity bias. I get it. I'm just, you know, just to balance everything out. But yes, I, I can remember the good. I do remember the good. I just hyper fixate on the bad. <laughs> Maybe we should end on that very positive point. <laughs> I can just edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking, I think Tia is completely valid in her experience. I think as a person of color, a woman of color, et cetera, like you, you've been dealing with all sorts of shit for like hundreds of years, right? Not and if anyone has any validity <laughs> to be like, this is all shitty and fucked up. It's you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Absolutely. And let's leave it there. Um, <laughs> See, I just got validated. Check. Thank you. Right. <laughs> yes, everything is is really shady. And also, I love our sector. I love the people who are in our sector. I love the work that we do. I love the people who are continuing to fight. 
I love the people who are taking a break from fighting so they can get renewed energy for other fights. And I think that that's kind of where we need to be. It's like, you know, like Tia, you are brilliant and you are probably burnt out a bit. And that's completely reasonable. And you deserve a sabbatical. You deserve a rest. You deserve, you know, I feel like you deserve to not have to fight all the time, every single battle to keep your energy up, to be optimistic all the time towards me or anyone, right? You just deserve rest. And those of us who can actually fight, those of us who have the privileges, male and white privileges and so on, able-bodied, neurotypical privilege, we should be out there fighting more so that those who have been fighting for generations can take a break and play Animal Crossings or whatever the hell that you do in your free time. Go <laughs> <laughs> watch that place. <laughs> and let's leave it there. Lauren, get to work. <laughs> I'm on it, I'm on it. I'll download Animal Crossings for you right now. Thank you. <laughs> Boo, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been everywhere in this episode and I love it. Yeah, it's been a real giggle as well. I appreciate that I've been a bit of a negative Nancy, but it's also, it's kind of for the funnies. And we also love the set, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it on this podcast for yeah. hours. We have very <laughs> transferable skills. So. <laughs> True. We're here for a reason. Exactly. So amazing. Thank you so much, Phil. It's been really great. Do you want to tell everybody where to find you? Yeah. Thank you, you both, Lauren and Tia, for having me. Everyone, you can find me on nonprofitaf.com. I'm also on Twitter at nonprofitaf and Instagram at nonprofitaf as well. I started making these little videos and Instagram reels. Hey. Like I started giving <laughs> dating advice, but from a nonprofit lens. I saw them. <laughs> so good. I saw the horror story ones as well under the covers. Great. <laughs> I love it. A new angle. (laughs) Right, everyone will check out Vu in those locations. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. I'm Vu. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.